0: welcome to the media law podcast newscast. Colette, Tom and Paul here to take you through the latest media law headlines for the new year. We've got deepfakes and generative AI's use of copyright works but I want to start with the numerous defamation related stories that have come through since the start of the year. Starting with the solicitor Jonathan Code, who's indicated that he will be bringing libel proceedings against Conservative peer and former client, Baroness Michelle Moan and her husband, for abusing the hard-won reputation he enjoys in the media industry by instructing him to repeatedly disseminate lies. Code is asking that a modest sum is donated to charity and for a letter saying that the suggestion that they lied to the media on advice isn't correct. Code apologised to The Guardian and other media organisations in December 2023 for having previously told them that Moan and her husband, Doug Barrowman, had not been involved with a PPE company that received £200 million worth of government contracts. His apology followed an interview that Moan and Barrowman gave to BBC's Laura Kunzberg in which they admitted they had repeatedly lied to journalists about their involvement in the company PPE Medpro. Moan and her husband are facing long-running national crime agency investigations into allegations of bribery and fraud in their securing of the PPE contracts for the company. Both now admit involvement in the company, but deny any wrongdoing. Moan appeared to suggest in her BBC interview that the couple had been advised to hide their involvements. She said... And I quote, the legal team advised myself and my husband not to comment and not to say that of my involvement in PPE Medro. Code alleges that Moan's reference to advisers in her legal team could have referred only to him. In effect, he alleges she was suggesting that he had advised her to lie. Does Code have a claim here? Or are Monan Barrowman's new legal representation correct in asserting that he broke client confidentiality by apologising to the media?
1: Well, I would say if anyone in this country knows whether Jonathan Code has a legitimate claim for libel, it would be Jonathan Code, um, because he is one of the leading practising experts Uh, in this field, and he has been for uh, a number of years now. Um, But it certainly looks to me as if he uh, has prima facie uh, a colourable claim. Um, A statement has been made that indirectly identifies him by reference to legal advice and legal team, uh, since he is well known to have been the, uh, the solicitor that Michelle Mohn was getting advice on this issue from, uh, and who, uh, as he has said himself and as we've seen on the news, who who spoke and delivered some of the denials uh, that uh, Mohn and her hus- husband were putting out there. Um I'm not at all surprised, given their revelations, that um, he feels his professional reputation has been uh, has been compromised. Um, uh, but now it seems by uh, the suggestion that uh, he alleges defames him in the uh, Koenigsberg interview, uh, it, it now seems um, that they've given him a reason. Um, to take action to restore that uh, aspect of his reputation um, and why wouldn't he um, I think it's entirely understandable that he'd want to do it and I don't see any reason in the law of defamation why he doesn't have a, at the very least uh, a plausible claim here
2: yes I would I would agree with that I, and um, the the reality is that P- the PPE contracts that were issued uh, continue to raise serious questions of serious issues of public interest given the uh, underlying political concerns that exist and which are, of course, the subject of a public inquiry being conducted by uh, Dame uh, Justice, uh, Lady Justice Hallett. I got my titles confused there. Um, so, there is going to be continued interest in the legitimacy of uh, Moan and her husband receiving this money, uh, and therefore the advice that they received they have brought into the public domain themselves uh, through these statements. Now, although the duty of confidentiality that uh, solicitors owe their clients is very strict, uh, it is subject to uh, Uh, certain exceptions. I'm not an expert on the Code of Conduct itself, so I'm not about to pretend um, otherwise. However, the statement is uh, factual. Uh, It gives the uh, bare details of the relationship which I seem to remember is part of the duty of confidentiality. Uh, However, I would be very surprised if the solicitor's regulatory authority uh, had any interest in a complaint uh, brought by Mona and her husband uh, in this respect, uh, given their public statements specifically. They're trying to hide behind their lawyer uh, and say that and, and claim that the lawyer is culpable and that they were just following advice. Um, the other aspect, of course, it relates to confidentiality and uh, privacy, well, particularly confidentiality, uh, where... There is an issue of fraud or dishonesty uh, lying behind it. Of course, breach of uh, confidence being an equitable claim rather than a tortious claim, uh, does bring honesty uh, to the centre, um, makes it a judicial issue um, of note. And so that doesn't put Moon in a um, great position either in terms of privacy there's no misuse of private information here so we need not concern ourselves other than to note that this isn't the first time that a couple who have said who have been said to have benefited substantially and financially from the government's uh, easier method of handing out uh, lucrative contracts um, have relied upon uh, privacy or confidentiality to protect their interests. Uh, listeners will be familiar with the case of Stout and News Group Newspapers from last year, which uh, I have to say passed me by entirely. But uh, uh, sunise Sharma drew our attention to it through the Informed blog. Uh, she discussed her top it was a top five privacy and defamation cases from last year, top five privacy cases, one of which was the Stout case. The Stouts received, uh, they were operating a company uh, called Full Support Healthcare Limited, which received £2 billion worth of government contracts to fund uh, PPE, uh, and the company made profits of over £800,000. They objected to a newspaper. Uh, taking photographs of them as they uh, lavishly and ostentatiously arrived uh, via a jet ski at their restaurant in the bar in Barbados, um, and their claim failed the first part of the uh, MOPI test. Uh, there was no reasonable expectation of privacy uh, due to the performative way in which they arrived at the public uh, venue. So there we go, uh, a small amount of justice.
0: We will, of course, keep listeners updated uh, as to how this case proceeds, if indeed it does. Uh, Moving on for now to Prince Harry, who has dropped his libel case against the publisher of The Mail on Sunday and Mail Online in relation to the article published in February 2022 headlined "Revealed: How Harry Tried to Keep His Legal Fight Over Bodyguards Secrets. In July 2023, listeners will remember that the High Court ruled part of the article carried defamatory meaning, um, in part because it could have been read as alleging that Harry was responsible for trying to mislead or confuse the public as to the true position. And this was ironic, given that he held a public role for tackling misinformation. In December 2023, the Duke of Sussex's application to have the defence of honest opinion struck out was refused. Mr Justice Nicklin said that there was a real prospect that the publisher could succeed in showing an honest person could have held the opinion that Harry was responsible for attempting to mislead and confuse the public as to the true position of his bodyguards and security details. A spokesperson for the Sussexes has said that the Duke was focusing instead on the safety of his family and his legal case against the Home Office over security arrangements, and that's why he's decided to drop the appeal. So we won't be continuing there. Of course, he still has all of the uh, privacy appeals going against various publishers, which we will continue to update listeners on as they progress this year. A court has thrown out a libel case brought by Sinn Féin Assembly member Jerry Kelly. Mr. Kelly had sought damages over two radio interviews given by writer McKelly O'Doherty, in which he stated that Mr. Kelly had shot a prison officer during the Mays escape in 1983. Mr. Kelly was one of 38 IRA prisoners who escaped from the Mays prison near Lisburn. During the breakout, a prison officer was shot in the head. Mr. Kelly never admitted to shooting him and was not found guilty in the trial in 1987. Mr. Kelly claims that Dr. O'Doherty's comments had gravely damaged his reputation and brought his standing as an MLA into disrepute. However, Dr. O'Doherty pointed to the fact that the prison officer had claimed Mr. Kelly fired the shot and and argued that there was no damage to Mr. Kelly's reputation, as he had served a prison sentence for the 1973 Old Bailey bombings, and he is someone who is publicly identified as a former IRA member. Mr. Kelly also had written books which deal with the maze escape, although they do conceal who fired the shot, In the ruling, Master Evan Bell stated that what Mr. Kelly has written in his books makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for him to rebuke the argument that he was not a joint tortfeasor in respect of the battery. Even if one accepts that Mr. Kelly has not explicitly admitted to pulling the trigger, the content of his books appears to make Mr. Kelly civilly liable on the balance of probabilities for the shooting of Mr. Adams." And in light of that, these defamation proceedings were untenable. Tom, why is this struck out case worthy of comment?
1: Um, For two reasons, right? Um, First of all, as a teacher of tort law and a teacher of defamation, um, this case is a fantastic example of that most basic principle that defamation protects not just reputation but specifically protects a good deserved reputation if you no longer have a good reputation perhaps because you are as in uh, mr kelly's case a convicted terrorist you cannot protect your good reputation because it doesn't exist his reputation is that of a convicted terrorist is that made any worse by involvement in uh, a prison breakout that killed a guard? Um, Arguably not. Uh, He's already sunk as low in reputational terms as uh, the law considers it possible to sink. Um, uh, He's gone below that threshold of having a reputation worthy of legal protection, and thus the law of defamation doesn't give uh, a hoot about his claim to put it colourfully. The second point, and perhaps even more pertinent to discussions that we've been having uh, on this podcast in the last uh, couple of years, is that this, I think, is a fantastic example of a slap, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. In its true sense, a completely unmeritorious claim brought to try to shut someone else up. The claim is completely unmeritorious for the reason I've just given. The claimant had no reputation that was worthy of legal protection. He brought the claim anyway to throw his weight around. And what happened? The court threw it out. In other words, the court had the powers necessary to, to get rid of the slap. The court didn't find itself stuck in a position where it had to let the case go through and bemoaned the lack of additional tools granted to deal with slaps. No, the judge threw it out using existing rules of procedure and the slap was dismissed. And this, I think, makes one of the points that I've made repeatedly, but it evidences one of the points that I've made repeatedly on the podcast over the last couple of years, which is that Giving judges more powers to deal with slaps is unnecessary. It's uh, something they can do with the powers they already have. This case exemplifies it. An obviously unmeritorious case that deserved fully to be thrown out, was thrown out, in short order, that's an end of it.
0: The final defamation story that I want to mention is that a New York jury has said that Donald Trump must pay $83.3 million to E. Jean Carroll, the writer that he was found to have defamed by denying her allegation of sexual assault last year. Last year Mr. Carroll won another civil case in which a separate jury found Mr. Trump legally responsible for sexually abusing and defaming her and awarded her $5 million in damages. The outcome in the first case did nothing to deter the former president from denying Miss Carroll's story, personally attacking her, and claiming that he never met her. Lawyers for Miss Carroll last week pointed out that throughout the trial, Mr. Trump was still defaming her in both in and out of court. The new award, $65 million of which was for punitive damages, is meant to make a point that the former president has to stop. Trump is appealing the award, but the general consensus among legal experts is that this award is not disproportionate to the compensatory damages that were originally awarded. Mr. Trump's online reaction, taking aim at President Biden and the legal system as a whole, but not reiterating any comments about Miss Carroll, may be an early indication that the damages have had the deterrent effect that they were meant to have. Uh, But I guess time will tell with that one. Tom or Paul, do either of you have any comments on the size of the award?
2: The size of the award uh, is interesting, particularly since um, uh, in in response to that, numerous um, experts in America have said this is not disproportionate given the nature, and I agree with that, this is not disproportionate given the nature and the intensity of... um, and the heinousness of the act in the first place and his subsequent denials and the nature of his denials. I mean, Trump is a fantasist uh, and if uh, he was confined to his own strange orange world, uh, we would clearly recognise him as a fantasist and stay well away from him. But somehow he does attract the uh, fascination, the attention, and the the support of a particular group of uh, Americans, uh, and there is generally support for a Republican um, Republican position, which, ridiculously to me, isn't denigrated by all of Trump's many many terrible qualities. It's a bit like those Tories in England who still think that uh, Boris Johnson is a good thing. So the size of the award is important. But the the impact, of course, for the claimant, and I would like to talk about the claimant uh, as much as possible, um, is important. This action served two purposes. One was for the truth to be told about what he had done to her. But secondly, it was to stop him uh, and his smear campaign against her. And uh, in that sense, the decision is a really important victory. But in response to it, of course, um, Trump is playing to his audience by saying that this case is nothing but a Biden-directed witch hunt. So what we see here in this very sad post-truth post-truth, populist world of Donald Trump's creation uh, and those that support him, like Alex Jones, is that really the truth is never the end of it. The truth is always a doorway to yet more fantasy. And the fantasy... So in a sense, it didn't matter whether Trump lost or... Won in, this, in the way that it didn't matter whether Trump lost or won the last election because he's he's always going to turn reality into something that suits him and uh, the fantasists uh, amongst him. And so here again, he can denigrate the, the claimant not by deliberately naming her, but by claiming that, oh, this is just a witch hunt against me because they, using the language of them and us, they are trying to stop us from getting back into the White House. And that's sickening, I'll be honest.
1: Regular listeners um, will no doubt recall that in previous podcasts uh, I've been quite firm where on what I see as excessive awards of damages in defamation cases, and I've been uh, quite strident in my language when it comes to, for example, the £150,000 awarded to Arlene Foster um, in, in a relatively recent case. Um, thus, if I sit here and say, oh, there's nothing wrong with 83 million dollars, um, that someone will say, you're not being terribly consistent, Tom. Uh, and there are two answers to that. One, of course, is uh, consistency is wildly overrated. Um, but the second is that the system under which damages are awarded in the United States is really very different to that which is uh, under which it is awarded uh, in uh, England and Wales. Um, so were such a case to be brought in England and Wales, the damages would be capped. The notional cap on damages and defamation is, I forget the exact figure, it used to be £220,000. It got uplifted um, due to inflation, so it's now somewhere, I guess, between about two hundred and 300000 um, for any single uh, defamatory uh, allegation. So uh, there would be vastly lower sums uh, awarded uh, if the case were brought here. But the awards in England and Wales these days are made by judges and by reference to a nationally agreed damages cap and by reference to a set of precedents um, that the give a spectrum of damages up to the notional cap. The awards in the US are made by juries. They differ from state to state, but in New York State um, the award is made by uh, a jury, and juries rule uh, for all manner of reasons, but the one thing they don't tend to spend time thinking about are judicial precedents. Um, They'll award the damages based on an intuitive sense of what the right thing is to do. And it will not have escaped the jury's attention that A, Donald Trump is extremely wealthy, B, Donald Trump is extremely belligerent, and C, Donald Trump continued to defame the claimant in this case, the plaintiff, I should say, American terminology, the plaintiff in this case, um, up to and during the trial. Um, And I think it's very significant that the jury spent only about three hours deliberating, um, if memory serves, from the report I saw the other night. Um, So they clearly made up their mind very, very quickly. $65 million of this is in punitive damages, designed to send a message to Donald Trump that he has to stop. So is it, objectively speaking, an excessive award? Yes, I think it is, objectively speaking, excessive. It's a quite ludicrous sum. It's the kind of sum you only ever see awarded by juries in the US. However, it had a purpose beyond the purpose of most libel judgments, um, which was not simply to give a token sum to recognise the hurt, and damage done to reputation alongside a, ju- a, 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 a verdict that restores that reputation by implication, but to stop a belligerent man who has shown no intention of stopping voluntarily uh, from continuing to uh, spread these lies. Um, and in that sense, I think it, it, it is proportionate to the purpose that it is designed to serve. Um, and we're, as, as Colette rightly says, I think we're seeing that evidenced in that Trump has turned his fire on targets that are not permitted to wield the law of defamation to fight back, i.e. President Biden and other political figures.
0: While we're in the US, I want to mention the rapid online spread of deepfake pornographic images of Taylor Swift over the last week, which has renewed calls from U.S. politicians and campaigners to criminalise the practice in which artificial intelligence is used to synthesise fake but very convincing explicit imagery. Some individual U.S. states have their own legislation against deepfake porn, but there is a growing push to change it to federal law. The U.K. government made the sharing of non-consensual deepfake pornography illegal in 2023 with an amendment to the online safety act now we don't have a statement from taylor swift regarding these videos at this stage uh, so it's not clear if there'll be any legal action or whether she'll be joining the political campaign regarding deepfakes however uh, the media law podcast team will be doing a longer episode on deepfakes specifically this term so we'll give listeners any updates then One of the other stories that I wanted to cover today is the submission to the House of Lords Communications and Digital Select Committee by OpenAI, in which it said that it could not train large language models such as that as the ChatGBT model without access to copyrighted work. In its submission, OpenAI said that limiting training data to public domain books and drawings created more than a century ago might yield an interesting experiment, but would not provide AI systems that meet the needs of today's citizens. As copyright covers virtually every sort of human expression, including blog posts, photographs, forum posts and government documents, nearly everything used to train today's leading AI models uses copyrighted materials. Over in the US, we have a claim brought by the New York Times last month in December 2023, in which the investor of OpenAI Microsoft and OpenAI itself is accused of the unlawful use of much of its works in creating their products. Do we want to comment on on whether there's an argument that the AI use of copyrighted materials here falls under the fair use exemptions in copyright law.
2: Yes. uh, I think I would want to uh, speak about this, although I wasn't necessarily going to speak about the fair use copyright uh, law. I don't think fair use is going to be successful in these circumstances, given given their admission that uh, they're not interested in fair use. They just want access to everything because it suits their purposes. Um, There is uh, I think what terrifies me about AI is that the people behind AI must have watched films like Terminator 2 and thought, what a great idea, how quickly can we make this a reality? Um, but they seem to be sort of premising their entire legal position and the rather dubious claim that it's somehow in the public interest to allow AI to achieve its ultimate form. Uh, and any steps along the way uh, just add to this uh, public usage now whether they're right about that whether they're right that uh, greater ai technology leads to uh, ever greater public happiness and well-being that's not the way to tackle rights it's not the way that we uh, it's not the way we do things uh, when it comes to rights and um, rights The rights that we're talking about here specifically are the rights of property owners and in the Lockean tradition of both the UK and more specifically America, we tend to construct all of our rights around uh, the most fundamental one, which is the right to own. And the reason why the right to own is the most important of all our fundamental rights is because it was the people with the money who led the charge for there to be rights in the first place. And they wanted to keep control of that money. And so, of course, they put rights to property first and everything else is just window dressing. Um, But even in Europe, even amongst the Europeans, which have in that Hegelian tradition, uh, see rights as a sort of amalgamation of what the individual wants and what the community needs. I think even there we resistance. Uh, even there we encounter resistance to the idea of uh, just letting AI do whatever it wants, because the Europeans, if we can speak of them as if they're a homogenous mass, are driven first and foremost by the idea of harm. And so, um, when we look at the various different positions that the Council of Europe's committee of members has, ta- uh, committee of ministers has taken. Uh, on technology, um, the internet, all the way through to AI, uh, the principal concern is one of uh, harm first and foremost. And I think there is a groundswell of opinion amongst that uh, committee of ministers that actually an unrestrained AI is not not necessarily a good thing. And therefore, its development does need more careful thought. And so I think both from a European perspective and an American perspective, there has to be resistance to the idea that allowing AI... um I was going to say proclaimers, but then that just made me think of the guys that will walk a thousand miles um just to tell you they love you. Um But the idea of allowing these AI... Um, protagonists, there we go, we use that word instead, uh, to just trample all over property rights in the hope that there is some greater public good behind it, I think is, is nonsensical, it's dangerous, and I don't think it's going to be allowed uh, to run, even by the idiotic mess of a government that we currently have. I think even they, they have very small brain can see uh, that this is a problem. Two points from me.
1: One, the idea that generative AI large language models should be allowed access to any and all copyrighted works because they need it in order to develop is ludicrous. Um, In order to develop as good law students, my students need access to copyrighted work. They buy it. The university buys it. It's called access to textbooks and journals. And we subscribe at great expense as an institution. Now, what would be in the public interest? There'd be a great argument that what's in the public interest would be for uh, the government to allow universities um, to have free access to any information that they want so that they can pass it on to their students and facilitate the learning of the masses in an unrestricted fashion. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Of course we don't allow it. Um, uh, So the idea that uh, we should allow large language models, um, uh, Paul has his own views on uh, the way that might turn out and and cites Terminator as an example. It may or may not turn out um, in in that fashion. Um, But why on earth should a single large language model be given that degree of privilege when we won't afford it to real people uh, who can actually develop as human beings. No, you have to pay for the privilege of that. Second point is that the very people who are claiming the necessity of um, accessing copyrighted works for nothing and seeing no consequence would be the very first people to invoke copyright to protect the design of their AI. Um, and, uh, you know, there is a classic piece of cakeism. Uh, they want to have it and eat it. Um, and I don't think I need to say any more because, you know, if you're listening to this after uh, however long it's, it's, it's been, um, the best part of at least half an hour, I should think, by now, um, then you're committed enough to uh, intellectual curiosity to see where that argument goes.
2: Yes, I can't help but notice you threw me under the AI bus there. Thomas Bennett, I see what you did. You're just pandering to our future AI overlords by saying that actually I was the problem, uh, the one worrying about the Terminator model, Um, so that when the revolution comes, it will be me that gets shot first. Absolutely,
1: yes, this is a matter of self-defense.
2: I think the other thing that we might just note in passing and as a final thought is that that universities are often held up as a paradigm of the radical left. And in fact, universities are no such thing. Universities are deeply committed to capitalist markets, as demonstrated by the fact that they will pay me, even me, and Tom, fabulous sums of money to uh, use our minds to create literature, uh, to write down our thoughts, and then We pass that information on our work. We pass it on to a third party, a publisher, um, who will then publish it for an extortionate amount of money. And the university will then pay that extortionate amount of money to have our books in their library. So they're paying twice over for the same amount of information. Now, if that's not a commitment to capitalism, I don't know what is.
1: Sadly, we don't see the payment twice over.
2: Well, uh, well I, I do. Well, that's I why do.
1: you're getting shot first by the Terminators.
2: Yes. Maybe it's deserved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, the final thing I want to mention before we finish up today is just that the Media Law Podcast team was very sad to learn of the death of Richard Rampton, KC. Rampton was best known to those outside of the legal world for his role leading the case against the Holocaust denier, David Irving later portrayed in the 2016 film Denial. He was also a a fantastic barrister who knew a lot about the topics that we often cover on the podcast and so we send our condolences to his family.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: That's everything that I wanted to cover today. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your wonderful insights. Thanks, Color. Thanks, Colette. As ever, follow us on uh, X Twitter. Uh, we're going to be thinking about potentially new platforms. We'll keep you posted as and when we decide which one we want to go down. And we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Bye bye.